Awesome. Well, uh, like I said, my name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, grateful to get to join you for worship this morning. And like John was saying, if you are new or visiting, we'd love to get to know you. Love to help you get plugged into the community. And small groups really is one of the best ways to do that. And so uh, my wife and I, we go to the Burkhart small group. So therefore, it is objectively the best one. You are welcome to check it out and uh, be a part of the greatness. So uh, we'd love to have you. So <laughs> excited to well continue our series in the Gospel of John together. But like I said, if you've been gone and you're just joining us for the first time, let me just catch you up briefly on, on John's Gospel as we dive into chapter 7 this morning. But from the beginning, what we've seen is that the Gospel of John, like the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are kind of like documentaries about Jesus' life and ministry. But John's documentary about Jesus is really unique. It, he ignores all kinds of things the other three focus on, and he brings up a bunch of new, never-before-seen kind of footage from Jesus' life and ministry. And <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> he brings it out for us to see. And we've seen how the reason for those differences in John's gospel isn't just because he was just like bored with whatever had gotten written before and wanted to spice things up a little bit. But instead, what John's doing is he's writing his gospel about 20 or 30 years after the others had been written. And he's writing it to a people who had been familiar with all the other ones. In fact, the problem is, is that he's writing to a people that become too familiar with Jesus. And so he includes all these new stories and all these new perils about Jesus and helps us see him in a new way because what he's trying to do is wake us up from this kind of groggy familiarity with Jesus to the eternity-altering reality of who Jesus said he was and proved himself to be. Because what John's not after is just kind of like an intellectual faith that like agrees with some facts about Jesus. What he wants is like a heart-level faith that's put our hope and our trust in him and in a way that transforms our lives each and every day. And what we've seen so far throughout the, the gospel is that one of the primary ways that John tries to, to do that, one of the primary ways he tries to wake us up to the, to the magnitude of who Jesus is is by recounting a number of the miracles he did. John specifically refers to them as signs because in John's gospel, Jesus' miracles, they're not just powerful actions. Instead, they're meant to be like billboards on the highway, signs that point to something beyond themselves, revealing something important about who Jesus is and what he's come to do. But, but signs aren't the only way that John tries to wake us up to the magnitude and the glory of Jesus. Uh, what we're going to see is that there's another way this morning he tries to do that. One of those ways that John tries to show us that, how um, one of the ways that John tries to, again, wake us up this morning to Jesus is by showing us how Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of what the Old Testament Jewish feasts and celebrations were always meant to point God's people towards. You see, after rescuing God's people from slavery in Egypt, he, he brings them out into the wilderness and he begins to kind of ordain for them a number of festivals and celebrations that they're to celebrate every year. And, and those rituals or those, those festivals, they're meant to help remind God's people of all that he's done in powerfully rescuing them from slavery and, and providing for them in the wilderness. But also they're meant to keep pointing them forward to the kind of ultimate fulfillment of those festivals and the ultimate way in which God provides for and rescues his people spiritually. You see, for example, we saw over the last two weeks in John 6, we saw how John specifically points out that Jesus' miraculous feeding of the 5,000 and his claim to be the bread of life. We saw how that, all that takes place in the lead up to the Feast of Passover. And part of celebrating Passover for the Jewish people involved eating a meal that was reminiscent of the ones their ancestors ate the night before God sent them out into the wilderness and rescued them from slavery and brought them to the promised land. And so when Jesus says that he's the bread of life who's come to give his life up for his people, his claim is he's showing in part that he's the fulfillment of that Passover feast. 
That in him, the the fulfillment of that picture has finally come. We're going to see something similar to that in the next couple of weeks as we take a look at chapter 7 this week and chapter 8 next week, you see. And this time, uh, though, John's going to be showing us how Jesus claimed to be the fulfillment of all that the Feast of Tabernacles and its rituals were meant to point God's people towards. You see, the Feast of Tabernacles, it was this kind of seven or eight day celebration that took place every fall after the harvest. And it commemorated the way that God had provided for his people in the past as they journeyed through the wilderness. It it rejoiced in God's current provision, having brought in the yearly harvest. And it, it pointed them ahead to their ongoing need for God's future provision, both with regards to rain to kind of replenish the land, but also spiritually to kind of pour out his spirit and to, and to replenish their hearts. See, it's in the context of this great feast that we're going to see Jesus stand up and invite people to come to him and to drink the living water that he provides, not only so that they'll be sustained and satisfied, but more importantly, we're going to see that he does so that God's living water might flow out of them to be a blessing to a thirsty world. It is such an incredibly cool passage. Can't wait to show it to you this morning. So let's pray. We'll dive into God's word together and go from there. God, thanks so much for you and for your word and for our time together in it this morning. God, we're just so grateful we get to gather and study it. And God, we want to come uh, just with a dependence on you. God, as the people would come to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles with with this reminder of their dependence on your provision, God, we want to come again this morning with a reminder of our need for you and the way you provide for us. And so, God, we ask that you might not just meet our physical needs this morning, but you might meet our spiritual needs, that you'd be showing us, Jesus, how you're the fulfillment of all this festival was meant to point to, and that you might help us rejoice and be satisfied in you in such a way that flows out of us into others. And so, God, I don't have any power to bring that about, uh, but you do. And so I ask, God, for our good and for your glory, you might do that, we pray. Amen. All right, well, we're going to be in John chapter 7 this morning. We're not going to read the entire chapter, and we're going to, in fact, kind of zoom ahead to kind of near the end of the chapter, kind of the meat of what Jesus is getting at as he's talking about himself as the fulfillment of this festival. It begins in uh, our passage this morning, we're going to begin in verse 37. It says this, On the last and greatest day of the festival, right, that's the Feast of Tabernacles specifically, Jesus stood and he said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. For whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit from from those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is a prophet. Others said, He's the Messiah. Still others asked, How can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem in the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. All right, so our passage this morning, right, it it centers around this this offer that Jesus makes, right? At the beginning of the passage, Jesus stands up and he makes this incredible offer to people, right? He says, let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink, right? And he says, whoever believes in me, as scripture said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. See, for us to really understand what Jesus is offering, we actually have to do a little bit more of contextual work and understanding the Feast of Tabernacles and, and the rituals that were a part of that in order to really understand what Jesus is offering, 
See, like I mentioned earlier, the Feast of Tabernacles, also it's called the Feast of Booths, it happened every year in late fall after the harvest had been brought in. And during the the seven or eight days of that celebration, there was a number of rituals uh, that were meant to help point people, remind them about how God had provided for their ancestors while they were wandering in the wilderness on their way to the promised land. And and one of the ways that, one of the rituals was that many people would come to the festival, they would live in these kind of outdoor, kind of like tents or kind of like lean-to things, and they had these really thin walls on them, like like the tents would have been as they were, when they lived in the wilderness. And, And they were meant to be this reminder about how God had provided for his people while they were living in tents when they didn't have any permanent homes. But there was, a, there was another daily ritual that was meant to remember and to foreshadow God's provision for his people. And this other ritual is at the very heart of this whole festival, this whole celebration. You see, one of the ways that God had provided for his people in the desert was by supplying them with water. And if you read in Exodus chapter 17, God had rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt, and he'd led them out into the wilderness, and and they find themselves camping um, at this place called Rephidim. But there was no water there until God tells Moses to kind of strike this huge rock with his staff, and and water comes gushing out of this rock, and it supplies God's people with water and and, and satisfies their thirst. And, And every year during the Feast of Tabernacles, God's people, they found themselves in a very similar situation, right? The late fall was a period always of drought in Israel, right? There hadn't been any really strong drenching rain since the spring, and so the fields were very dry, and cisterns were low, the wells were getting low on water, springs and the rivers were becoming weak, and so so water is on everyone's mind at this time of year. And there's this very clear sense of like a need, a renewed need for new water to come. And it's amidst of that very present need for water that every morning during the festival there'd be a procession of priests that would go down to the Pool of Siloam where, where one of the priests would dip uh, uh, this golden pitcher in the Pool of Siloam and he'd fill it up with water. And while he was doing that, the, the people that would surround this, this ritual, they would, they'd be crying out, they'd be reciting these beautiful words from Isaiah 12, verse 3, that said, with joy you'll draw water from the wells of salvation. And what happened is that the crowd would kind of follow the priests back up the hill, back up through the city, back towards the temple. And, and so they got to the temple, the, the priest would go to the altar, and, and he would walk around the altar one time, and then he would pour out the water on this stone altar. You see, and what would happen is that every day, or every day, every morning they would do this, and yet on the seventh day of the festival, the last day, this procession, it took place seven times kind of this ultimate kind of fulfillment of, of, this, of this until the water began to flow out of the base of the altar and started to flow down the steps out into the temple courts. See, for the Jews, this water ceremony, it was a, a sort of rich symbolism and it had, it had meaning on a couple of levels. First, it was, on one hand, it was a plea, right, to God for rain, right? It was a reminder, they're in the, the season of drought and it's, a, it's this plea that God would again water the ground, that he would again sustain his people physically with food through, through the giving of water. And on the other hand, it was this plea for God for spiritual blessing and for spiritual renewal. See, like we had mentioned, God brought in water from a rock in the desert, and here water on the seventh day is flowing out from this stone altar. And it's water beginning to water the temple courts. And Zechariah and Ezekiel, they both had visions 
you read in the Old Testament, they both had visions of, of a day when, when this river would flow out of the temple. In the midst of a drought, it would flow out of the temple grounds. And it, would, the, it would get deeper and wider. And everything that this river touched that would flow out of the temple, it would renew it with life. It would bring healing and restoration. It would cause everything it touched to bear fruit and to have life in it. And the rabbis, they all understood these visions from Zechariah and from Ezekiel to be about God's promise that one day he would pour out his spirit on his people and into the world. So this water ceremony was meant to be a reminder of the spiritual hope that those passages pointed God's people to, that one day God would pour out his spirit and he would bring spiritual renewal and restoration to his people and to the world. And John tells us that it's on the last and greatest day of that festival, the day where that water ritual is repeated seven times, that Jesus stands up in the midst of the crowds and in a loud voice he cries out, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Just imagine that moment. In the midst of all of that symbolism, in the midst of all that that ritual is meant to point people toward and remind God's people about, Jesus stands up and he essentially says, I am the fulfillment of everything this is about. It's about me. He says, I'm the one who actually gives life. I'm the one who can give you the water that you've always longed for. I'm the one who gives you the spirit of God that you're praying will pour, he'll pour out on, on you. And I'm the one that, that through you can bring life to everything you touch. He says, come to me and drink. I have the water you're looking for. You see, Jesus was offering himself as the fulfillment of all that ritual was meant to point them towards. You see, in their longing for God and their, for the arrival of His Spirit and His kingdom that the feast foreshadowed, it didn't need to be just a longing anymore. Because the water had finally come. The one who brings the Spirit had finally come. In Jesus it had come. And it's such an incredible offer, but we don't just need to understand the context of Jesus' offer. See, we need to understand the conditions of His offer. See, the offer that Jesus makes for people to come to him and drink, right, there's two conditions we see in the passage. And the first is that you have to be thirsty. See, verse 37, he says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. See, there aren't any ethnic or intellectual or social qualifications for coming to drink of Jesus. There aren't, isn't a need for money or some impeccable moral track record. The invitation Jesus makes, it goes out to everyone. You only need to be thirsty. The only requirement is that you have need. John's vision of heaven in Revelation 22 repeats this idea. The Spirit of God and Jesus, they, they, they cry out to the people. They say, come and let the one who hears come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the free gift of, wa of the water of life. See, to be thirsty is to admit your need. See, the only people that Jesus' offer excludes are those who refuse to admit that they're thirsty. See, but being thirsty is not just about admitting our need for something in general. See, the thirst that Jesus cries out for, those who are thirsty, it's about admitting that the thing we need, the thing we're really thirsty for, is Him. See, and that brings us to the second condition we see in Jesus' offer. 
Right again, he says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me. Come to me. See, you have to come to Jesus to drink. Like the woman at the well in chapter 4, the reality is that all of us are thirsty. All of us are thirsty. The problem is, is that we try to quench the thirst that only God can satisfy with everything but Him. And we look to the idols of power and comfort and control and approval to satisfy our thirst. We try to quench that longing in us with possessions and with physical intimacy and with praise from others. We, like we talked about in all of that, what we're trying to do is we're trying to quench this spiritual hunger that we have with physical kinds of food. And they, they never can do it. You know, we see throughout our lives and throughout scriptures that God's gracious. And he lets us try to drink from those wells so that in the end we'll find them empty. One commentator puts it this way. He says, God causes every wreath to wither, every gold cup to tarnish, every muscle to sag, every face to wrinkle, every sexual exploit to go sour. He allows every sin to sting until we have put him off for too long because he wants everything but himself to grow dim in our eyes. For only he can satisfy. Only he can give life. I feel like in my own heart, God's been reminding me of that reality this week. I don't know how your week was. Mine sucked. It was absolutely brutal. It was rough this week. And I found by Tuesday that I was absolutely spent, like physically, emotionally done. And Wednesday came and the week just got worse. And I am just like clinging on for dear life. When I was realizing in the midst of my just like pleading with God to get me out of the situation, what I was realizing by his grace is that I wasn't the reason I was so thirsty. The reason I felt so empty, the reason I felt absolutely drained is because I wasn't drinking from him. I've been looking for rest in places that weren't wrong or evil, but places that couldn't actually give me the kind of rest I was looking for. What I needed to fill me up wasn't the escape from a situation. It was his presence that would empower me in the midst of whatever situation I was in. You see, the reality is that only Jesus quenches our thirst. And to receive Jesus' offer of life-giving water means that we don't just admit he's the thing that we need, but that we come to him and drink. That we fill up our hearts and that we fill up our souls with him, with his word and his presence. We saw last week Jesus telling those crowds, he says, my words that I've spoken to you are full of the spirit and they're full of life. See, the reality is, is that in order that we might receive the offer of life-giving water Jesus makes, we have to admit we're thirsty, that the thing we're thirsty for is him, and to admit that all the other fountains that we've been drinking from have not been satisfying, they have not given us life, and so that we might come to Jesus, and then we might say to him, you, Jesus, are the thing my soul is after. You're the one thing that fills me up that doesn't run dry. You're the one thing that gives life in the midst of difficulty. 
Only you can satisfy. And just like when you drink a glass of, glass of water, you trust it to go into your body and to do whatever it's supposed to do, right? You don't try to like give the water instructions, right? You don't try to be like, all right, so I'm going to drink you and then I need you to go to like this part of me and fill that part up and then I need you to do this other part of me and kind of fill up this thing that I'm lacking. It's like you drink the water and you let it do its thing because you're not in charge of it. So it is with drinking Jesus. See, to come to him and to drink him is to say, Jesus, I'm letting you come into my life on your terms, not on mine. To say to him, do what you will, examine what you want, fill where you see I am lacking. In the Chronicles of Narnia, a series of books, uh, there's a, one of the books is called The Silver Chair. It's written by a guy named C.S. Lewis. And, and in that book, he, there's, this, there's this part of the story where he puts his finger on that very reality and all these books that C.S. Lewis writes, they have these profoundly spiritual undertones, very intentionally. And there's a point in one of the stories where, where a character named Jill, she sees this lion, his name's Aslan, he's kind of like the, the Christ figure in the story. And she's so freaked out that she just starts running, right? She runs so far and so hard that she is just absolutely to the point of exhaustion. She wears herself out to the point that she's thinking that she's about to die of thirst, right? And she hears at that point the gurgling of this stream in the distance. But when she approaches the stream, that same lion that she was running for, she sees that lion standing at the very edge of the stream. And he asks her, Are you, aren't you thirsty? I'm dying of thirst, Jill says. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away for a little while while I do, said Jill. The lion just answered by only a look and a low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. For the delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to, not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill? I make no promises, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step near. Do you eat girls, she said. I've swallowed up girls and boys, men and women, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you'll die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step near. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one had ever seen his stern face could do that. And her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she had had to do. But when she went forward to the stream and knelt down and began scooping up the water in her hand, it was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever said, ever tasted. Do you see what C.S. Lewis is trying to tell us? See what that story is a picture of? See, like Jill, all of us, whether you realize it or not, we are desperate for water. And without it, we will die. But when you come to drink the water Jesus offers, you have to see you are not coming to an empty stream. You're coming to a lion. And the only way to come and to drink is to do it on his terms, not on yours. 
You have to yield yourself to him in faith in order to receive the waters of eternal life that he offers. But when you do, what we see in the passage is that there is this incredible result. See, the passage doesn't just show us the context and the conditions of Jesus' offer, it shows us the consequences of Jesus' offer. Remember last week in John 6.35, Jesus promised that if we would believe in him, that we would never thirst, right? His promise there, it focuses on our our satisfaction, on our contentment, on on our own fulfillment. But in our passage this morning, Jesus takes that promise another step further. In verses 38 and 39, he says, whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant his spirit for whom those who believed in him would later receive. See, Jesus says that when we come to him in faith for life, he fills us up with his very spirit, not just in a way that satisfies and fulfills our own longings, but in a way where his life-giving spirit flows out of us into others. When pastor put it this way, the promise is not that we will be satisfied, but that we will become satisfying. See, in drinking from Jesus, we become not merely a receptacle for living water, but a channel that rivers of his living water might flow through. See, what's so important that you see is that that being a channel through which God's living spirit, his living water flows, flows through and pours out into others, what you have to see, it's so important you see this, It is not a result of being satisfied in him. It's actually part of the means for being satisfied in him. See, water is always meant to flow. Stagnant water is never healthy. Stagnant water is never healthy. See, the same is true of Jesus' life-giving water in us. John Piper, he sums it up this way. He says, experience has taught me that the joy we feel as Christ flows into us, it will always turn sour if what does not flow out of us in praise to God and in love for others. If our hearts are not rivers of love and praise, then all our religious experience will become just a brackish pond. See, the reality, the upside-down reality is of God's kingdom, right, is that you never actually experience the satisfaction you're meant to have unless our lives start giving satisfaction to others unless we overflow out of him, out of his goodness into the lives of others, until his living waters flow out of us into a parched world. One of my favorite things to see is when people become Christians, what just like almost universally happens is that they just start talking about Jesus with people all the time. And they just like, what happens is like they, they just want others to know about him. For the first time, they're drinking deeply of something that is actually quenching their thirst. And it's just like this natural reaction is they just want to offer it to others. It's like when they've had a great meal and they want to share it with someone else. And Jesus says that's the natural result of coming to him to drink the living water only he can offer. He says you're not just satisfied, you become a source of satisfaction for others as you overflow with his life-giving water in you. You see, you're never meant to just be a receptacle. It's that you might become a river that God uses not just to flow into you, but to flow out of you into the lives of others. And so we've seen the context of Jesus' offer, the conditions of it, the consequences of it. There's one more C I want to show you this morning. One more C you have to see before we close. See, the passage also shows us the cost of Jesus' offer. 
Verse 38, it ends. Up until that time, the Spirit, the Spirit that He had promised, this living water flowing in and out of us, it had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. See in John that phrase, Jesus' glory, his glory be, that Jesus was glorified, it always refers to his death. Always. See, in order for Jesus to be able to fill us and to overflow out of us with his life-giving spirit, he had to die. See, the Feast of Tabernacles was this jubilant time of celebration for everyone except Jesus. Because while everyone is using this festival as a reminder to celebrate God's provision, what Jesus knows is that this celebration was always pointing to the reality that he was the provision, that he was the thing that would have to be offered so that they might be able to drink and have their thirst quenched, that he was the means by which their sinful rebellion might be forgiven and cleansed, the means by which a, a holy God might not just dwell with or around, but in his people. That could only happen at the cost of his life. So we talked earlier about how the Feast of Tabernacles was meant to remind people of God's provision from the water, from the rock in the wilderness. But I didn't tell you the whole story. You see, at the very heart of that story is not that God's people wandering in the wilderness acted in faith and they found themselves in a place where they were thirsty and they cried out to God, trusting that he would satisfy their thirst. No, uh, actually it's the exact opposite of that. Right? God leads them out into this place and instead of trusting him, they act at a, in, with complete lack of faith. They're about to, in fact, kill Moses because he's the closest authority figure to God they can get and they're really mad with God for bringing them out into this wilderness and making them thirsty. And, and God comes to Moses and he tells him, he says, Moses, take the elders and the rod of God and go up to this big rod, this big rock, that, the rod or the staff of God. It was always associated with God's discipline, his punishment, his judgment. Right? But instead of using it on the people, God says, he's going to stand on this rock. And when he does, he says, Moses, when I stand on the rock, I want you to hit it. And water will come pouring out of it. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul tells us that that water gushing rock in the wilderness, he tells us that was a picture of Christ himself. See, God was using that situation in the desert, not just to show his people that he could provide the water they wanted, but to give them a picture that one day he would come and be the water that they actually needed. That he would do the thing they really needed him to do for him, that he would stand in for them, that he would take the blow, that he would take the punishment for their faithlessness and their rebellion and all that it deserved. As Tim Keller notes, he says in Exodus 17, God is saying, someone has to be punished for this rebellion. And one day I'm going to come down and take that punishment. One day I will take the stroke because I take the stroke in your place. You'll be able to get the blessings. You'll be able to get the rewards. See, when Jesus dies on the cross, when he is glorified, that's exactly what happens. John tells us in chapter 19 that when he died, he, he was pierced with a spear in the side, and what flowed out of him? Blood and water. To the rock that was struck in the wilderness was always meant to be a picture of Jesus. The rock who would be lifted up on a cross, who would be struck so that out of him living water might flow. That as the true and better temple, 
it might saturate the grounds, not just of God's people, but it might flow out into the world from him and to be a river that brings life wherever it goes. See, Jesus is the rock who takes the punishment for our sin so that he can pour out into us and through us his life-giving spirit. And because he was glorified, we get the blessing. Because he paid the price, we get his life poured into and poured out of us. See, it's Jesus' substitutionary death for us that we're remembering and celebrating every week when we take communion. We're reminding ourselves every week that it's our blood and our body that deserve to be broken, and yet Jesus did it for us. As the rock who was struck so that he might give us life, we remember and we come to Jesus in communion, we're reminding ourselves of all that he's done for us, of his body and blood which were broken and shed for us so that he might overflow with life-giving water in us and into a thirsty world. And so communion doesn't make you right with God and it doesn't save you. The only work that earns, the, that, earns that, that water is to express our need for it. Communion is a chance for us to remember all he is and all he's done for us. So this morning if you're here and you've come to Jesus to drink, the water that he offers. What you do for the first time this morning, then during our time of worship, go back and take communion. Do it in joy as you remember him and all that he has done for you. His body broken for you, his blood shed for you so that you might drink the living water he has to offer by faith because he's cleansed you and made you whole. Whatever you're here today and you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, you're still figuring out who he is and what it means to follow him and if you really want to come to him and drink yet. I just want you to know you are welcome here and I'm so glad that you would be here. But God is not after getting you to go through empty religious rituals. See, communion doesn't save you. It doesn't change your status or your standing with him. It's a chance for us to remember all that he's done. You see, what Jesus wants from us is that we might thirst for him and that we might come to him to believe in him so that his life-giving spirit might fill us and flow out of us. And so communion might not be right for you this morning, but Jesus is, and he stands offering life to you, hands open to you. And so as we sing, as we worship, and remember the gospel together in song, I just want to encourage you, wherever you're at, talk with God. Some of you are here this morning and for the first time you are realizing that the thing you are truly thirsty for is Jesus. And you've been chasing, trying to quench that thirst in your career and in your business endeavors. You've been looking for it in your spouse and in your kids and in the next thing over the hump. You've been looking for it in the praise of people or in the success that comes with money. You've been looking for it in every way, shape, or form. And yet Jesus is offering himself to you as the one thing that actually can satisfy. And more than that can flow out of you to be life-giving to others. That's the thing our hearts really are after. See, but you can't just stop at admitting that he's the thing you're thirsty for. That'd be like looking at a glass of water and just admiring it. Right? It doesn't quench your thirst to just look at it. You have to come to him. You have to drink. You see, and what's happening at the end of the passage is that people are just looking at Jesus. Right? You see, and there's all these different opinions about who Jesus is. Some think he's a prophet. Some think he might be the Messiah. Some think, some think he's just a deceiver. See, but the one thing that none of them are doing is actually coming to him. 
They're just, they're just having an opinion about him. And that's never what it means to come to him. Like we said, to come to him and to drink is to receive him on his terms. Not to make up your mind about him. So you actually have to come to him and drink, meaning you have to put your faith in him. You have to entrust yourself to him and to his work in you being done as he sees fit. I need you to see this. The offer that Jesus extends to you this morning. He stood up and he made that offer to the crowds and he did it knowing that many of them wanted him dead in the moment. In the face of certain opposition and probable death, he stands and he offers himself as the life that they are after and he does the same thing for you this morning. Do not shrug him aside. Come to him and drink. Others of you are here and you're realizing that your present thirst is a result of the fact that even though you know that Jesus is the thing that satisfies, you are realizing you're thirsty because you've just been trying to drink from other fountains. And the invitation for you this morning is that you might confess to him the empty fountains you've been going to for life. That you might turn to him again in faith, believing that he is the water you want and need, and that by his grace you might again drink deeply of the life he wants to fill you with and to flow out of you with. Come to him and drink. But maybe you're here this morning and you're finding that you're, you are trying to drink deeply of Jesus. And you are looking to him for life, but you're finding that your joy in him is waning. And I just want to suggest to you that the reason for that might be that instead of becoming a fountain, you've just been a pool. And like a pond without flowing water, your faith has become stale and stagnant. And the invitation is that you might ask Jesus not just to fill you with his spirit, but that you might ask him to flow his spirit out of you into others. That you might not just be a receptacle, but that he might turn you into a river that, that, that waters a parched world, a world that is desperately thirsty for him. I just want to encourage you. I have seen over and over again in my own life how offering Jesus to others, how being a channel for his water into the lives of others is the most life-giving, satisfying thing you can do. Here's the secret. Right? Jesus is a well that never runs dry. You never run out of him. He's meant to flow into you and through you to others. Ask him that he might do that for you. It's the key not to your own joy, not only to your own joy, but to the joy of your family and your friends and your neighbors and your coworkers, that they might see him as the life that they're after too. Let's pray. Jesus, thanks so much for your word. Thanks for the offer, Jesus that you extended to these crowds and that you extend again to us this morning. That if we are thirsty, we might come to you to drink. God, and not just be satisfied ourselves, but that we might overflow with life from your spirit in us and to others. Jesus, that's the way to our joy in you 
and it's the way to your joy in others. And so we pray, Jesus, wherever we're at, whether we need to come to you and drink for the first time, whether we need to return again to you and drink deeply of the life you have, to, or whether we need to offer it to others, Jesus, might you empower us with your life-giving water to be your people and to water a parched world with your spirit, we pray. Amen.